Ladies and gentlemen, Kirk Thatcher and Darren Bachterman, the Weirded Beardos. When last we left the Weirded Beardos, we were in the in the thick of uh, of uh, Kirk Thatcher land. In the, in the sick of it, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're sick of it, which is why they thought, "Oh, good, a new episode." Nope, sorry, back in the in the muddy mire of my weird career. Well, my, it's the my bearded career or my weirded career. <laughs> We're here with Kirk Thatcher. I'm Darren Docterman, and uh, he's we Darren are, Docterman. We are no, the Weirded Beardos. Mostly, uh, on uh, on most of these times and channels. So, uh, if we shaved, would we be the um, just the Weirdos? No, we'd be the Daved Shapredos. <laughs> Shapravedos. Anyway, it's a thinker. Not really. Daved, depraved. So I was doing. Oh, the, yeah, the. Yeah, I guess we should keep the beards. Yeah. <laughs> so we were talking right before we started. And I just wanted this is a deep cut. Yeah. On, on Jedi. So the song that Cy Snoodles and Droopy were playing. Right. Singing to when we recorded it and we rehearsed to Rick James, uh, Super Freak. Right. And I don't know. So what happened was John Williams' son wrote. <laughs> well, John song. Williams wrote the music. Okay, and, and his son wrote the lyrics. And his son wrote the lyrics. Which the got, English lyrics. The English, oh, it's got translated. So it's called A Fancy Man Is Coming. Yeah. Which was, you know, dun, 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 dun. it was, it yeah. was. It is now cut out of the movie. Yeah. Well, in the re, in the reissue. Yeah. But in the, if you get the original DVD or something, right, you still have. They cut it out entirely? You can't, you can't get the original version anymore. Oh, in English. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But the the gibberish version or the alien what whatever the language yeah. is that's in the movie oh, okay yeah but then they redid it entirely for the yeah re exactly that's what I'm saying all oh, right but I mean if you have the original DVD you would hear yeah the I don't know what language the Hutties version yeah is it Hutties the Hutties yeah. version of Fancy Man is well uh, I was just hearing Ben Burt talking about this the other day on a on a uh, podcast um, that uh, the lyrics for the Hatties isn't actually Hatties. It's made up by uh, the girl who recorded the, the song. Yeah, that's what I thought, because it's not it's not Hatties. I mean, I'm not a nerd, but I know. I mean, you know. I know Klingon and Hatties when I hear I, it. I know Hatties, oh, and that's shit. not, they do that too well. <laughs> well, now you're doing stuff from the special edition, which is yeah, which is not good. Although Banta Pudu was in the original. Uh, the Banta yeah. Pudu. Oh, George. I can't go uh, high, thank God. Let's just do Star Wars voices. <laughs> Anyway, that was a deep cut. So the John Williams wrote the song "Fancy Man Is Coming." That Darren, and Joseph Joseph Williams, his son, wrote. That's a Kunbera's Joe, I think they call yeah. him. But uh, I never met the man. But yeah. we started with Rick James. I think on set right. they rehearsed and shot to "A Fancy Man Is Coming," and then it right. got turned to yeah. Anyway. Is thumping, a fancy man is coming, so I'm shaping up and working out. There you go. That's right. Yeah, you remember that. I, I only heard it when we rehearsed 42 years ago. Because it's on those documentaries. They have it on those uh, oh, okay. features documentary. Oh, that's right. I didn't know if you could hear the whole song, though. You anyway. don't hear the whole song. You just hear the good parts. So this is part two, but I changed my hat so you know this is the second half. Yes. Of blathering when about last it. we left, Kirk, he <laughs> was on Treasure Island. And I am now, again. Yeah. Um. So Treasure Island was great, and I think I was saying what was wonderful about it was we, the writers, well, here's the nightmare that happened. We went over there, and we were writing kind of production drafts because, you know, either this set piece couldn't be built or we've added this and whatever. We're kind of making it work and adding gags. And Jerry and I was literally like the week before they were supposed to start shooting, and it was a Friday, and we were doing all the polishes. We had production notes. We had two or three meetings with Brian and the art department, you know, whatever the things we could do, things we couldn't yeah. do, and just tightening up. We'd had some read-throughs, so... We literally went through and we we hit save. We said, okay, I'm just going to go through it one more time. And we started, and on page like seven, suddenly, and this was final draft, like version two. So this is 1995? Five? Five? That late? Wow. Maybe 94. 
Well, I think it was shot in 95, came out in 96. Isn't that right? Okay. I, anyway, midnight. I don't remember. So it was it was way early version of, of, of Final Draft. Infernal Draft, we started calling it, because what happened was we were five, five, eight, just going through making typos, essentially, just a house cleaning pass. And suddenly, and I don't know, it doesn't do this anymore, thank God. St- some of the dialogue started turning into gibberish, like hex text code, like not English, not even just literally gibberish, like symbols and and we're like whoa, whoa, whoa what's what happened that 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 didn't that wasn't there hold on hold on hit save and then you hit save and it would spread and the more we scrolled through the script oh the more God. it spread like, oh okay, okay stop stop just stop okay what do we do so we're in england so we call final draft because they're you know this is like five six in the afternoon it's early it's, so we call final draft and back in those days the guys who wrote it would answer the phone right i said okay and they love the fact the muppets were using it we're like we are working on the script and it started doing this we don't know what to do we've saved it and they said well can you send us the file and we're like yeah but back then it was all like yeah yeah so it, we can send you the file it might take a couple hours so we send them the file they said we're going to work on it today and send it back to you so you have it oh my god overnight so <laughs> we got it back saturday and they had stopped whatever had happened but about 20 percent of the script had been gibberished so jerry and i went all right and we just slogged through with our memory and rewrote everything we remembered and so that was like oh my god you know computer giveth computer taketh away uh so we got the draft done and then i stayed on for about two or three weeks just to kind of be there to help with you know they wanted me to stay for the whole thing i'm like eh, you know i don't need to sit there and watch a movie being made Aww. i don't need to see you ruining my jokes um uh, but it was really fun. And the, the biggest highlight for me was Cabin Fever, which I think we talked about in the middle of a movie when I was a kid. And it was all plot and, you know, character development. I was like, oh, kill me now. So I said, let's put a thing. Because in the book, there was a moment where they're cast in irons, they call it, where the wind just dies. Yeah. And so I said, well, let's let's get they start going crazy because in the book they do handle like, you know, people start getting antsy. And I said, let's let's do a Cabin Fever thing. So uh we worked with uh, barry and cynthia who wrote the amazing score and the amazing songs uh the, the, i'll hold those up against any musical i think they're yeah. wonderful and uh so we gave them a list of gags and things and so they incorporated into them and then i got to kind of storyboard and write out the visual gags i didn't really storyboard because we didn't have time i just wrote out like and then it died i said someone pops off in a coffin and you know and so then they the puppet shop had to scramble and props had to make a coffin and because we didn't really know the song until like we were there and they were you know it wasn't like it was written a year before right. um so that was great and it was nice to be respected as a writer which you know it, it's more in movies you're less respected as a writer. i said i did it all wrong i I wrote for movies and directed television. Both jobs were less respected than the, the converse. If you're a writer in television, you get, you know, then you're the you're the, the big cheese. And if you're a director in a movie, you're the big cheese. But right. uh, TV movies, not so much. Anyway, so I did Muppet Treasure Island. Became very dear friends with Jerry Jewell. Came back to Los Angeles and started directing little moments for the Muppets. I did... One of the things, speaking of Star Wars a little bit earlier, we uh, we did a bunch of the Muppets auditioning for characters in Jedi. Oh, that's funny. Or, or auditioning for Yoda, I think. And that's right. been, that's, I think Lucasfilm put it as an Easter egg in one of their movies, uh, the Muppets auditioning for Star Wars characters. And I think it was mainly for uh, the, the the trilogy, the original trilogy. Right. But we had Fozzie doing Yoda. So it's Frank doing Fozzie, trying to do that's a bad hilarious. Yoda. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And again, they showed it at ILM, and then I heard it's in one of the Blu-rays, or one of the, you know, it's an Easter egg in one of them. Wow, well, I don't um, think I've ever seen it, but that sounds great. I'm sh- It might just be on YouTube now. But so Henson had joined forces with a company called Hallmark, which is not the card company, it was Hallmark Channel. So it was Henson Hallmark. And I started doing writing and directing these little skits as interstitials for that with Jim Lewis. Jim and I would write them, and I'd direct mm-hmm. them. And, and I started directing and worked with Frank and and uh, Steve Whitmire was doing Kermit and uh, it was a lot of fun and kind of getting my Muppet directing chops in and uh, so this was between 96 uh, like end of 95 96 into about 97 and then the Muppets sold uh, the company sold Muppets Tonight which was basically a redo of the Muppet Show but now it was a TV station right if I will update a little bit it'll be a TV station instead of a vaudeville theater or a, a music hall theater and uh, so started working on that uh, both designing writing 
and uh, was an, uh, I forgot, a supervising producer on it. And uh, we worked on that for about a year, about a year. We did two seasons. ABC, ABC put it on the air, and, and the, after the first 12 or 13, uh, Dick Basucci, who was the showrunner, who, who had come from SCTV, who had great stories about those right. guys. Um, he, uh, he and I went to meet with Jamie Tarsus, who had just taken over uh, ABC as the head of the, sh you know, the network head. Yeah. And she really only had one question. It was like, how are you going to get males 18 to 35? And we're like, well, we've had test screenings and that is the group that is the least, you know, they want cars and boobs and beer. And, and she goes, I know. So how are you going to get them? I said, well, we had Michelle Pfeiffer. We've had Heather Locklear. I mean, we've had Sandra Bullock, who was amazing. I could do a whole episode about how great she was. Um, and they're all, and she's like, okay. And I said, so, you know, we're trying. I mean, we're not, it's not a kiddie show. Um, we had Pierce Brosnan. We, we killed our guest stars. We were doing everything. And uh, I remember at one point we showed, so uh, two guys who'd become friends were guys who were running uh, Seinfeld um, with Larry David or for Larry David, uh, Max and Tom, uh, Pross and Gamel. <laughs> and uh, we knew them because Max Pross's wife was Jim Henson's assistant and a development exec back in the early 80s or mid 80s when I met him, Mira, Mira Velomirovich. It's a hell of a name. Um, and she was a sweetheart. So we asked, so we'd become friends with them. We said, hey, do you want to read our scripts to see like what you think? Like, is there something we're missing? And they read a couple and they got back to us and it's hilarious. Like we, it's the Muppets. Like it, you're doing what we would expect from the Muppets, we don't have any notes. So yeah. at least from people we respected comedically, they were like, this is great. But but ABC, I think, moved our time slot like three or four times. One of the biggest issues we heard from fans was Kermit wasn't used as much. And that's because right. Steve had just started doing Kermit like full time as opposed to in a movie once in a while. And there was a concern that the difference would be more noticeable. Not that Steve is one of the most amazing puppeteers technically. Yeah. But, you know, he's not a mimic, and that's not really the way the Henson Company works. It's like you take on the character, like we said earlier, you become right. the character. Make it your own. And, make yeah. it your own. And he didn't try and change the voice. He just, you know, as someone someone once said, it sounds like uh, Kermit doing a Steve Whitmire impression. <laughs> Which is fair. <laughs> um, I mean, everyone, their brother does a Kermit the Frog. Um, sure, but it's so... We didn't. We relied more on Clifford, which is a character I designed for the Jim Henson Hour, right? And and it was Kevin Clash, who's an amazing performer. But the personality of Clifford was like we <laughs> we we said okay. When I started with Jim, I said why don't we have non-white but ethnic uh, Muppets? Because Stout and Walter for white, um, you know, uh, J.P. Gross is white. There were definitely Caucasian Muppets. I said why don't we do yeah. Muppets who have are of other ethnic diversity? And Jim was down with that. He loved that idea. I designed an, uh, an Asian guy and I designed Clifford, who was African-American or African, uh, you know, stylized, of course. And and the, the thing was, we would, uh, Kevin would perform him so they couldn't take pot shots at us and say we're doing, a, you know, <laughs> yeah, black sock. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a black face. Um, so Kevin, you know, who's an amazing puppeteer, came up with like, yeah, man, hey, Kerm, he's just kind of a cool dude. And I think the problem was we why he wasn't a bigger character certainly wasn't the design um because he kind of looked the like energy that. well because everyone wanted to be safe like he couldn't get into any kind of stereotype so he was just a cool man like hey kerm be cool and mm -hmm. like he was basically like another kermit like kerm was like all right everybody but kerm would go ah! and we you know the idea was clifford was unflappable he's like all right, right well right. you know i've seen worse it's a fun idea it it didn't i still love the character but it didn't uh didn't gel so much with the audience. Now, the character that did come out of Muppets Tonight that I loved and I loved writing for and I still do is Pepe, right? Which was uh, Bill Beretta, yep, basically doing uh, taking an impression of his aunt who was Spanish and turning into this amazing character. And I think I'd said earlier on one of our podcasts about we needed our Daffy Duck. We needed a guy who was a complete unrepentant a hole, right? Because it drives besides you, besides me, who represented my point of view. Um, well, because they, they had gotten to the point when I started, like everyone was sweet and loved each other. And we're all just a bunch, a bunch of friends who get along and live in the same house, which is fine. But it was becoming full house, except without Bob Saget, you know, <laughs> everyone was Uncle, Uncle Sweetie Pie. So I was like, all right, let's let's. And then Brian so it was Seymour and Pepe and Brian was this big dumb elephant. 
and uh, Pepe was the little jerk. And and Brian just never got the character. He liked it. He's just like, okay. I mean, Pepe kind of drove it, and 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 uh, Seymour was the straight man essentially. And Brian just didn't have the. And that's the thing with the Muppets. You can write a great character. We had a character who uh, has become what Matt uh, Vogel is doing with Deadly. He was named Alligator. And he was a reptile who studied Shakespeare. And he talked like this. And and Matt sort of has taken Deadly and turned him into that guy. He was very, very, you know, flamboyant and queenie and, 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 and snarky. Oh, Jonathan and so, Harris. Exactly. I mean, it literally is based on Jonathan Harris. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but the idea was he's an alligator. So he never got, you know, he got like a third role in Jurassic park and he he wanted to play, you know, the romantic leads. Uh, and so some of that personality has gone into uncle deadly, which made me very happy because that's one of my other favorite characters. Um, so I wrote him up at tonight for two seasons and then Disney, uh, ABC pulled us after the first season, which was sad. But we'd already shot, I guess, the second season. They put it up on the Disney Channel, so nobody, nobody got any money, no residuals, all yeah. that stuff. You do a TV. Funny show. how that works. Yeah, funny. Ha ha. Huh. Um, but uh, <laughs> also, so let's see. Hadn't directed then. I was writing and supervising producer, which was great. I got to work with Garth Brooks. Uh, it's Prince. I was associate or uh, supervising producer on set for uh, Prince, Garth Brooks, Sandra Bullock uh who else who else uh cindy crawford which is its own story um so you had a great time and we won an emmy like two years later yeah <laughs> and it won for best children's program which is funny because muppets mayhem just won for ch- best children's program so even when you try yeah. i mean you know there were drug references and stuff or at least getting stoned references and that and they're like oh it's a kid show like all right yeah. don't which you is- know puppets are for kids puppets are for kids i know which is why well, jumping ahead, Christine McConnell, I said, don't call them puppets, call them creatures. Because Gremlins mm-hmm. isn't a kid's movie. I mean, kids love it, but it's not a kid's movie. Yeah. If they had, if they looked like Uncle Deadly, it would have been a kid's movie. So right. so learning that, uh, I started, well, then I started directing. Well, I'd been directing shorts. It did not direct on the show. And what happened was I'd written a script. So I'd written three Muppet movies at that point, uh, aside from uh, Treasure Island uh, with Jim Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a haunted man or a, a Halloween special that ultimately they took the story and turned it into Muppet Monster Madness or Muppet Monster Mayhem or something it became a video game. But the idea was the Muppets go to Transylvania and get changed into classic, classic right. monsters. And then so that didn't get made. And then it turned into another special or a, sorry, a movie idea, which was basically a Muppets kind of Ghostbusters, except the core team get turned into ghosts and have to go to ghost haunting school and learn how to be ghosts and then try and rean. They got unalived, I think was what the term we used. Cause they're like, well, you can't kill them. I'm like, well, they're unalived through magic. So um, they were under a bookcase that had crushed them. So their bodies weren't like rotting away. Well, like they were just unalived by a, a vengeful ghost who was trying to marry Miss Piggy. And if she married him for tw- and stayed married for 24 hours, he would, he would get his uh, human form back and be alive. And anyway, it was very silly and fun. And that didn't get made. And so I had gone off and written on my own uh, Muppets in Space. Right. And it was essentially like, I mean, this is way before a Family Guy had done the Star Wars parodies. Um, it was around the same time, actually, just before, I had written it just before uh, Galaxy Quest came out. Right. So we had a lot of the same ideas, except it wasn't, there was a TV show and Kermit was mistaken. It was like, it was 200 years in the future and the Muppet Core gang had gone through a military space, like basically federation training. Right. And they were so bad. They got put on the janitorial crew on the, on the, on the impressive, the USS impressive piggy though, had shown real uh, strength. And so she had been gone into a, a commanding school. Like had become and graduated as an admiral because she was ruthless and, you know, knew how to yell. Like Denise people. Richards. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've never <laughs> met the woman. But she was she was a she was tough, and so she got you know they she matriculated into a, I don't know you call it like you know, West Point, and they got janitorial yeah. class. So, anyways, a long story short, Kermit's mistaken for an alien leader, and in another side of the galaxy, it was really funny. And Disney wanted to make it. At the same time, Jerry Jewell had written a script he called Star Gonzos, 
which is about Gonzo. It was very small. It was really about Gonzo going through a midlife crisis of like, who am I? What am I? I don't know what I am. Everyone else knows you're a pig, you're a frog, you're two old white guys. I'm a whatever. So he'd written this very sweet, small movie. And it was essentially about Gonzo being uh, discovered by a group of UFO nuts. I remember when, when we were doing Treasure Island, Jerry had all these UFO books. I'm like, oh, I love UFO stuff. He goes, eh, I think they're crazy, but I love the... I love that world, so I'm doing a, 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 a story about it. So this was, was what the story was, is that Gonzo had become beloved by this group of uh, like a cult right. and had kind of become their leader and was sort of enjoying the fact that he was regarded. I mean, not that the Muppets hated him, but it was sort of like, oh, these people like me more and the Muppets think I'm a weirdo. Right. And so we both had these two scripts and jerry was very sweet we uh he sent me a copy of his i sent him a copy of mine he wrote me back he said look this is hilarious um don't forget the core the heart of the characters and how they care and take care of each other even though it's you know 200 years in the future they're still the muppets and i'm like thank you yeah and very sweet notes and uh i just i didn't give him notes i didn't feel it was my place to give him notes on his script so during that time sony the disney deal ended and i don't know why right. And Sony picked up distribution. Now, Sony was run by Amy Pascal at that point. And they read the two scripts and they said, well, we want to do Star Gonzos because it's sweeter and smaller and it costs a lot less money. Right. Because <laughs> mine had spaceships and planets and aliens. So they started developing it with obviously the Henson development, the, the development team. And it went through, long story short, it went through 17 different writers. They're at the end of the movie, because I wrote on it for a couple of weeks and then did punch up, they, they sent out, the Writers Guild sends out a thing going, okay, do you want your name on this? And if you do, you have to show what you contributed. Right. And so I, I didn't want my name on it uh, because I was one of the last, like probably 13th or maybe 15th or 16th writer. I was writing jokes while I was shooting second unit in, in, uh, in Wilmington, we shot in Wilmington back where I, we'd shot Cat's Eye 20 years earlier. Um, so, or whatever it was, I don't, don't do the math on that. Uh, well, this was, 90, this was 99. Yeah. So it had been not 20 years, it had been probably 15 yeah. years earlier. Uh, so Jerry kind of left, he just left the, he just gave up. Yeah. And I, I think he didn't even want his name. I think he got story by, but it, it had just gotten blown out. And the whole thing of his was he, you didn't know at the end that Gonzo was an alien or not. You just knew that he didn't need that kind of ego stroking to feel loved. And the Muppets really loved him for who he was, not for who they wanted him to be. Right. And it was this very sweet, very small story. And uh, I remember we had the read through after like this. Uh, so Jerry, they'd hired a couple of people at this point to do a few new drafts. And they had a read through and it was fine. It was a smile. It wasn't a big laugh fest. And I remember the execs brought me into a room afterwards. Like, oh, we need to, can we just talk to you? I'm like, okay, well, what is it? And they go, well, it's not funny. I'm like, it's not a big comedy script. It's a small, warm, fuzzy, sweet script. Oh, what do we do? I said, well, you know, you usually rewrite it and bring Jerry in and, you know, see, so was like, okay, okay. Cause there wasn't like, we didn't laugh at all. I'm like, well, first of all, the Muppet guys don't reread it, reread it to, like do a great performance in the read through. They just do it kind of pro forma and they, they know their characters. So it's not like, let me explore. It's like, I do my characters, but it, yeah, nobody's like- the movie. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, they save it for-, for They save it for they the read movie. it, you know, it, like again, they'll read it and then maybe not realize, oh, I'm supposed to play this like straight and I did it funny or vice versa. Right. And I, I'm, I'm not, it's I'm not throwing shade. I'm just saying, yeah, they don't bring it to the, the first read through. Yeah. And the other thing was, it was a sweet, it was more of a Hallmark movie than a, the kind of thing I was doing, which was right. big, broad, goofy jokes. So they panicked and brought ultimately 17 writers on it. And I, I still think it's probably the worst one in terms of production. It was just a mess. The director gave up uh, knowing what to shoot and just said, he went to the AD, what are we shooting today? Because, and it wasn't his fault. It's just, they kept rewriting pages. The producers were writing pages. I was writing pages. I was writing gags. So he was just like, all right, just tell me what we're shooting and I'll shoot it. So it was a frustrating shoot. I, on the other hand, got my second, I got my uh, director's, the DGA card. I got my director's right. guild because I was doing second unit. I was there writing. They go, hey, do you want to direct? Because I'd already directed a bunch of stuff. So yeah. I did some insert shots and a couple little scenes. And uh, so that's how I got my director's card. And then that came out, I guess, in 2000. And uh, so at this point, I'd had an overall deal with the Henson Company for about six years. And it ended in 2000 because their deal with Disney had ended in, in ABC. And then their deal with Sony was just for pictures. 
Right. Um, so I did some rewriting and I did some voice work on the uh, the Sesame Street movie, Elmo. In Grouchland. In Grouchland, yeah. I did some Grouch voices in that. So I started doing voiceover stuff. Um, and then I was developing shows. One show I worked on as just a character designer in this window of time was called Aliens in the Family. And it was written by Andy Borowitz, who I really respected as a writer. He's a lovely mm -hmm. guy. But he, he'd written a show, I Designed the Aliens. And I don't know, it kind of seemed like it was written campy. It was too much winking to the audience. So you kind of went, like Dinosaurs was the whole world. So you kind of went, all right, it's, this is a whole universe. It has its own tone. This was humans interacting with aliens. It was a guy had married an alien wife. He, you know, she had probed him and she liked him. So she ended up marrying him. But their kids were complete alien weirdos. And I think the, the dad had one kid from a previous marriage. So it was a Brady Bunch, but with aliens. And the aliens were very bizarre and fun to design but the show never found its kind of footing i think andy sold it and then it seemed to me like he wasn't so much and again i'm not throwing shade i don't i didn't really work on it past the design stage yeah. i just know it didn't it didn't i think they made it out of episodes aired three and killed it so i worked on that and then uh they came to me and they said we're gonna do a tv movie nbc really loves the muppets they wanted a new muppet show but they felt like they weren't ready for that. And so long story short, Jim Lewis had written a Muppet version of It's a Wonderful Life. Hmm. And so they brought in another writer, Tom, uh, I'll remember his last name in a second. Um, and he rewrote it, uh, working off Jim's outline, I guess. And that's how Very Merry Muppet Christmas Movie came about. Hmm. And that was my first directing gig. We shot up in Canada. I think four of my five pictures have been shot. My pictures have been shot up in, in Vancouver. Uh, it was amazing. We built the entire Muppet theater. Like you could walk from the doors that led into the, the audience section of the, the, the raked stage. And it sat, it was like a 350 seat theater. We got mm -hmm. real theater seats and you could walk up on the stage and go backstage in one continuous, uh, it was like steady cam shot. And it was all yeah. real. I mean, except oh, for the cool. ceiling and the floor. The problem was the Muppets can't, you can't do that with the puppets. Yeah. But we had Joan Cusack, David Arquette. It was a great cast, a bunch of cameos that NBC wanted, and it was a, it was a really fun experience. Um, you know, I, I remember Dave Goals, who's always been my biggest supporter as a director. I remember after the first or second week, he came up to me and goes, "This is what you should be doing. You're great at this. You know what you want. You're really fast. You tell us, you know, you kind of got it blocked out." I'm like, "Isn't that the job?" He goes, "You'd be surprised." Um, and so. Uh, yeah, that started my career. What was funny was now I wasn't a writer anymore. Now I was a director. Right. So uh, I did that. I worked on, uh, so I was developing my own stuff because I wasn't uh, in-house anymore. I was out-house. I was a realtor. So <laughs> yeah. when I wasn't, when I wasn't, uh, you know, directing or getting set up to direct a Muppet thing. So we did that. And two years later, we did um, um, Muppets Wizard of Oz. But right. in the middle, I'd gotten a call about the show called Lazy Town being shot in Iceland. And yeah, it was crazy. So I get a call from a woman who's like, I'm, I'm a producer in New York, and I've been contacted by the show in Iceland. They're looking for directors who've got special effects and Muppet experience. And your name came up with some of the New York puppet people who were going to work on it. And uh, so are you interested? I'm like, well, okay, what is it? Well, it's, it's a show. I can send you a, 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 like a demo. So she did. And so I was courting a new agency or they'd sign me and they were useless. They, I won't name names, but I called the guy who was supposed to be my agent. I said, Hey, I was contacted about the show in, in Iceland. It's puppets and things. I'm looking for a director kind of showrunner, uh, not as a head writer, but you know, someone to make it work. Cause it was computer graphics, high def and puppets and, and people all working together. Right. And they said, oh, okay, great, great. And then like two weeks later, the woman in New York contacted me again and said, um, are you interested because they're waiting and they need somebody I'm like, didn't my agent call you she's like no nope haven't heard from anybody oh so God. i called my lawyer said hey here's this deal so in two days we had a deal i was yeah. gonna fly out to iceland so they're gonna put me up in reykjavik it was open-ended see how it went but i was definitely gonna do two episodes which would take about two and a half months and uh see how it goes but open-ended to maybe do this this first season at least so i pack up uh and this is between this is right before muppets uh so it was 2004 
So I'd done Fairy Mary, had a year where I wasn't, I was developing and stuff, but nothing was getting made. So 2004, I got this call about um, Lazy Town. So I go to Iceland and I meet this guy who created it, who was, I mean, the definition of a narcissist. Um, an amazing guy. I mean, considering what he did in Iceland, it's like sometimes the people who get a lot of shit done are narcissists because they just have this, yeah. mon you know, uh, maniacal or monomaniacal vision, and they're just like, I will, I will dance and cheat and steal and sell and flatter anyone to help get this made. So he'd sold this the U.S. rights to Nickelodeon, mm -hmm. and he'd done this pilot. And he'd been told by another producer that he could shoot the show in like two days, like every episode. And I went out there and they were shooting in, it was the first high def, there were six Sony high def cameras at the time, the, uh -huh. um, or red cameras, sorry, red cameras. We'd, we'd shot the Muppet stuff uh, in the 90s, sorry, in the early 2000s on the Sonys. So they had red, like two of the six red cameras in existence. They were gonna do live blue screen they had the guys from um, Ultimat there, the right. was like a Polish inventor, and he had done a high def version that you know he jury rigged and, and made specific, not jury rigged, made specifically for the show. They had these huge foam latex puppets that were the size of parade floats um, to <laughs> to be in the show along with this little girl. It was it was a great little dancer and, and gymnast and. It was insane. This, the The best thing to come out of it was an actor named Stefan Karl, who played Robbie Rotten. If anyone's seen the show, he's the highlight of the show. He plays this bad guy. He's like talks like a Russian version of the Grinch, and his name is Robbie Rotten. They gave him this big prosthetic chin, um, and like rubber hair, black rubber hair. And he always was like talking like this. I know how to beat Sportacus. So the hero was Sportacus. It was basically a show about teaching kids how to eat healthy and be healthy and have a healthy lifestyle. So that's why it's called Lazy Town, because all the people there were ate sugar. They're lazy. Yeah. So, like, the episodes were like, you need to eat sports candy. Oh, what's sports candy? It's an apple. And then Robbie Rotten, who for some reason wanted nobody to be healthy, was like, no, you want real candy. So it was a very goofy show. <laughs> and I could go into a whole episode about what a nightmare it was to shoot, because a couple quick things because of the high bandwidth of these red cameras, <laughs> they didn't have enough storage space. It would, right. it would you were terabyte, constantly right? changing the mags or whatever. They well, had. they couldn't because they only had like, let's say six terabytes and you shot for 20 minutes and that was four terabytes, right? Yeah. So the showrunner, this, this narcissist came to me and he goes, okay, you can only, you can only save the takes you're going to use. I'm like, well, oh my God. I don't know how to, I can't delete them until I know which was the best take. So, he goes, no, no, we don't. We, you couldn't do like four takes if they were more than like 45 seconds. Oh, my God. And the other thing was we only had one camera. And so it's like you couldn't shoot two cameras to get two angles. So it was just an entire cluster foo. And but one, anyway, uh, the other thing was this guy didn't know how to shoot puppets. So I got sick. I got really sick for a couple of days. And, and the, the narcissist who who was like, I can do your job better than anybody. Uh -huh. I, I, he could do everybody's job better than everybody. Because I was sick, he went and shot one day. And everyone's, if, if you don't know how to shoot puppets, and the actors are usually on a 38 to 40 inch, like, standing thing, so they can be eyed out with the puppets. <laughs> he had the actress on that, but the puppets all looked like they were standing in a hole. They were all, like, talking to her crotch. And he didn't, for some reason, like you look at it on lens, you're like, why, why? So he was very upset that the stuff he shot wasn't usable. And I came back and at this point, he was like, you are you're taking too long. You, you are only getting like, you know, three minutes a day. I'm like, well, A, I can't move the camera. This is the other thing. Because the ultimate system wasn't ready yet, I couldn't move the camera. Right. I couldn't even dolly. I couldn't pan tilt anything. Locked off shots. Um, I could only do these short takes, had to then pick the take. So it was almost like a test of like the fact that I shot two episodes. So he kept saying, well, you need to do a storyboard so you know exactly what to shoot. His idea was if you and I were talking, I would just shoot your line and then turn around and shoot my line and then shoot your line and then shoot my line. I said, but that's crazy. I would just shoot all the angles. He goes, yes, but then you're wasting all this time where he's not saying a line. I'm like, but he's listening. You need listening. I know. This is what I mean. He was a narcissist who didn't, what was funny was he knew good filmmaking. Like he'd made a test where he knew angles and stuff, but he literally shot that way. Okay, I'm gonna say this. And then he shot that. 
and he didn't know coverage. He hadn't done TV, wow. he had done movies, yeah. like short films. So I was saying, well, that's kind of insanity. And so again, after two episodes, he's like, well, I remember we had a meeting with the producers who were these lovely guys who were Icelandic, mainly film producers. They'd done, you know, when James Bond goes to shoot there, they're the guys you call them right. for their production company. And uh, so we had this meeting after the first episode. He goes, you know, that very good. You, you, uh, you need to go faster and know exactly what you're going to shoot. I said, you need a storyboard. I said, well, storyboards really don't help. I can't move the camera. I mean, it's it's either two people talking, three people talking. I mean, I don't need to storyboard it. Well, and how are you going to make it faster? I said, well, it's really not me that's the problem. Your, your setup, the, the way you shoot faster is you cover one shot for the reactions and the yeah. dialogue. And then, no, 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 you can't do that. And then I said, okay, well, uh, if you're good, oh, and I remember this was the quote, if you're a good enough director, you can do it. I said, no, nah, I'm not that good. And so then he goes, well, then I'll, I said, I'm not that good. You should do it. He goes, I, I will do it. The literally the AD who was, who was a lovely guy, Richie, he'd been Woody Allen's AD on like eight films, almost leapt across the table and went, no, 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 no. You can't. Cause the guy starred in it. He was the star. He said, no, no, you can't, you can't direct and star in it. It's already hard enough. And so I did one more episode. And we sped up a little. I think at the end of the epi second episode, I could dolly left or right. I couldn't go in or out, but I could move left or right. Couldn't pan, or I could only pan on the nodal point. It was right. Yeah, it was crazy because every, every there was a set and then a blue screen background, and they didn't do tracking markers at that point. So after two months of that, I said, "You guys are great." Stefan and his wife uh, became dear friends. A couple other people were good friends. This uh, has so been great, guys. Thanks. I gotta go. Well, I got a call about doing another Muppet movie, which right. was uh, Wizard, of Wizard of Oz. So I went back and long story short, did that. The, the biggest frustration with that, I love the idea. I thought we just were kind of hampered by having Ashanti, who was a lovely singer, great person, <laughs> not could not carry a movie at that point in her career. Um, so, and again, I've talked about that on Muppet podcast. So after that, there was kind of a dry spell where I was uh, doing other things. I wrote episodes of Foster's Home for Imaginary uh, Friends, which was a great show. Right. They brought me on because I'd written for the Muppets, and that show was like five main imaginary friend characters who were very Muppet-like in their personalities, like extreme weirdos. Sure. And uh, so I wrote some of those. I did this crazy, like all the things that I did that didn't really go anywhere. Um, it's called Baby Einstein. <laughs> and this producer from South Africa had decided that what kids shows really needed, little kids shows like Sesame Street level, like, you know, two to six, was real little kids in it, that that mindset. And so I, I went to the first meeting and there were these pu it was puppets and kids. And he said, but I'm going to use real, we got to use real four-year-olds. I said, that's a terrible idea. Real four-year-olds can act. He goes, I know it's very pure and innocent. It'll be real. I'm like, but they can't act. They can't take direction. He goes, no, no, it's, it's, they don't have to do much. So compressing the story, we had the great puppets and uh, a great, uh, a guy, Dan, um, who had worked with Muppets and he did, uh, uh, he's a very creative guy and he kind of sold this idea, but this guy had come in and said, no, no, we're going to use real four-year-olds. So <laughs> we shot, here's the thing. So a puppet is very enigmatic fun thing to look at, especially when it's talking. Now, when you're four, you don't look at the puppet. You might look at the puppet and then you look down at the band, yeah. the big hairy guy who's standing out there going, hey, Skippy, you want to go? They could not look at the puppets for more yeah. than a second or two. So we we kind of muddled through this thing. And uh, one of the puppeteers, Victor Yera, does a great impression of me trying to direct a four-year-old. No, 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 no. Um, okay, just look at, see Skippy, the, the squirrel? Just look at his eyes. Like, when he's talking, look at him. Okay. <laughs> They start talking and they go, <laughs> I mean, you can't um, be bad at them. They're four. Yeah. So that was a thing that shows up on my IMDb. It is a never released Einstein pals. Um, That's what it is. Einstein pals. You, Einstein said, they, pals. you said baby Einstein, which was a different project. No, baby Einstein was the brand. And this was, uh, uh, Oh, a this was an of offshoot of that. Disney bought or was producing baby Einstein. This right. was an offshoot of it. Yeah. Okay. And it was puppets and kids and the puppets were great. And Dan and his team had done a great job with them, but this crazy, crazy producer had sold everyone that we're going to get four to five year olds to yeah. act. Or... So that you was to get them to come in and direct too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then, I mean, I guess the next 
big thing. I wrote some animation. I, I'd written a couple movies for the Henson Company that not did not get made. One was based on a a script that a guy out of England had written called Water Warriors. And the, the cute idea was that aliens had come to Earth, but they were the size of grasshoppers, and their ship crashed in a pond in in, a, in the English. And no one noticed. Yeah, and they but they had this device that was going to take all the water from Earth and oh. bring it and send it up to their planet or send it up to giant ships, whatever. They were going to steal all the water. And so this group of pond animals, like a turtle, a frog, a snake, uh, maybe a fish or two, had had mainly the frogs were kind of the heroes, had discovered this and were trying to fight, fight these aliens. And so uh, he had a very sweet script. So I turned around trying to make it funny and more action adventure and that never got made. I mean, I have a list, a long list of scripts I've written that you know, I got paid for and never got made. There's an episode. Um, but the fun, the fun thing that came out about this time was Curious Creations of Christine McConnell. Right. Which was she, Christine has this amazing uh, Instagram channel. And what time is it? We good? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 20 minutes. Okay. Uh, this Instagram channel, and she's an amazing creator, a maker. Like she ba- mainly was, it started was baking things like cakes and desserts, right. but either very um, creaturey related. Like I mean, she would do an alien cake that looked just like the Alien Queen, or do a Beetlejuice thing. And she had all these amazing pastries and decorative items that she'd done, and just an amazing craftsperson. Yeah. So she had a good following on Instagram. I mean, hundreds of thousands of followers. And so she had, with her management, the the people that had produced her book had come to, I guess, I forgot if they'd gone to, I think it was um, CBS or uh, Universal, CBS Viacom, yeah. And said, hey, we want to do a show. So they they said, well, who would you want to do it with? She said, I want to do it with the Henson Company because they know how to do this kind of thing. Yeah. So the Henson Company had done a test with a couple creatures that I'd, oh, I forgot about uh turkey hollow turkey hollow was a thing i did based on a jim henson story that he and jerry had written in the 60s and we turned into a tv movie and we designed these creatures Uh, we're working with pete brook at the creature shop um kind of designed these furry goofy looking but you know not muppety looking you know real hair and glass eyes creature so they yes creatures they used one in the test just to see how it was literally shot in christine's kitchen in her house and she showed me that and i said this is fun I met with Christine and she had these ideas for these characters in the show. So I turned her ideas into a show. Right. So I was the showrunner. I wrote four of the six scripts and I directed all of them. And because it was a reality show, I get no credit except as executive producer with like five other people. Awesome. Yeah. Good times. Um, story. But it was really fun. Uh, I got to create one of the personalities. Essentially the alligator character became a, uh, this cat, a mummified cat. She had wanted two raccoons. I said, let's, I mean, if we only have three characters we can afford, let's not do, let's not do doubles. Right. So Rose was one of the raccoons. She had the name. She wanted Rose and Rankle. I said, okay. Rose was this Frankenstein, basically a, a roadkill raccoon that she had, her character had reanimated, but used parts of a dog and a squirrel. And one of her, I, I, I pulled one of my favorite gags from all the way back from dinosaurs. Rose's right hand was a fork. Right. It had been the idea was she was pawing, trying to get garbage out of the garbage disposal, hit the button with her foot, tore off her hand so she'd replaced it with a fork. So I designed this kind of, you know, mangy looking raccoon, put a little pink bow in her hair to kind of go, oh, she's uh, cute. Yeah, she's cute. And she was. uh, We got an amazing performer. Uh, She did such a great job of taking that the script and then just making her live Colleen Smith just uh, you know, well the good thing about this was i got to help cat i mean as essentially the showrunner um i got to cast it and i work with people i you know knew really well right. our budget was absurdly small like ridiculously small like we begged and borrowed all the parts we used mainly parts the creature shop already had that's why uh rankle was a cat because they had done cats and dogs and they mm-hmm. had mechanics and underskulls and everything for a cat i said well let's let's make it an egyptian a mummified egyptian cat because they were yeah. worshipped in egypt who was worshipped as a god so in his mind he's still a god and, and then again this guy who's a performer who is an improv guy and had been worked at the creature shop literally as like a shop tech a guy named michael oostrom uh, did performed him did an amazing job and then uh my buddy uh Drew Massey, yep. did Edgar the Werewolf, and then Morgana Ignis, who's a super, super former I'd known forever, 
uh, played the suit was in the suit of the werewolf uh, um, Edgar. No, wait. Oh my God, Edgar was. This, it's, this is like six years ago now. Uh, Rose Rankle Edgar, right? Yeah, because there was a creature in the basement that was just two dark eyes and black fur. Anyway, you can tell I'm tired. Um, <laughs> or I'm just old. Or uh, you're just making this stuff up. Just make it which up. Which could also Anyway, be. so I got to write. I was originally going to write two, and we had two other writers. One of the writers didn't work out. He, he didn't really get the vibe of the show. So my friend Jordana Arkin wrote two of the episodes, and I wrote the other four. Yeah. Uh, but they were really fun. We, it was edgy. It was more adult. Christine was great at being Christine. Yeah, she's not yeah. an actress, but she knew how to be herself. And she's got a very calm, kind of quiet, de- you know, demeanor. And she would talk to camera. And we we played the joke that the creatures that she lived with is in this big Victorian haunted mansion. Uh, were didn't know that they were on a show. So when right. she talked to camera, they're like, "Who's she talking to?" It's like she's crazy. Um, so it was really fun. It's on Netflix. I, I, if anyone's not seen it, give at least watch the first two episodes. If you don't like it by that, you're not going to like it. But right. uh, the other thing was our budget was so low. How low was it? It was so low that we actually took all, all entire set except for one wall was taken was free because it was NBC Universal. Yeah, it was NBC, not CBS. NBC Universal, and they had it back in the days. It's all gone now. They had a scene dock where they just would store sets from shows and movies and furniture. So we begged, borrowed, and we just, my production designer, uh, Darcy Prevo, who ended up being my production designer on um, Muppets Haunted Mansion. This is where we became friends. She had been the creature, uh, the art director on uh, the Jim Henson, uh, on Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge, where I was a judge. Mm, Right. That was a great job. So we'd met on that. They brought her, I said, what about Darcy for this? I said, sure. I mean, I, I liked her. And then we got along like a house on fire. So she went and basically picked all the walls and everything, literally the entire set of that house. Every room in that house was something we found or she found and we repainted right. it and maybe put up wallpaper. So it was this Frankenstein house, which kind of worked. It was supposed to be a weird old Victorian. And we shot that show and I think 18 days, it was literally like, just over three weeks or or was 15 days, which is how long it took to shoot Muppet Haunted Mansion. So we did six episodes. We basically had to do two episodes, an episode every two days. Right. That's insane. Yeah, it was two cameras. Yeah, it was insane. And of course, they're like, why is this taking so long? I'm like, are you? And it was puppets. We couldn't afford to raise. Remember, there's this big meeting. Can we afford to raise the floor so the puppets can? And we're like, well, if we don't, then we get more set and then we get a budget for more props or something it was just so insane so i said all right edgar walks around on the floor christine's going to be walking around the floor the guest guest stars are going to be walking around the floor we'll just have to have the puppets on a classic muppet bit where they're on a dolly and laying on their back right and Um, behind something and really it was only for rose because rankle again we couldn't afford to build two like a walking one so we just had a sitting one the idea was he would just appear and just be there sitting and commenting Cause he's a mummy, he's a mummy. Like it's not super. So we kind of like, all right, it's not a bug. It's a feature. Right. <laughs> he can't move. He's a mummy. Um, but because of that, I, I, you know, I could do a whole lecture about how I think create unbounded creativity leads to problems. As Absolutely. I, I can, you need can, restrictions to help focus your ideas. Because then you're just shooting into the ether. I mean, I, I can name any number of movies where the directors had had a hit film where they'd had a tighter budget. And then they got here, you, you made the matrix. Yeah. make whatever you want you get all the money in the world and it gets flabby yeah. so we were kind of proof that and i think the show again you don't <laughs> i used to say we need a, a a crawl at the beginning saying this was done for basically a garage sale budget <laughs> um but i'm proud of it i think it's funny and I, it it definitely considering budget and schedule we we did an amazing job which nobody knows they're just like oh it's fun uh and Christine had gone had gone off to have like a million followers on Instagram, and she bought an old Victorian house. She bought for, an old house that was like for like four hundred thousand dollars. Like that, yeah. In upstate New York, and basically she lives her show. Every right. she works on her house and builds her furniture, and f- her husband films it. He writes the score. She writes the script, stars in it, and does the building. And they're living their dream in their dream yeah. house. It's an amazing. It's a gorgeous house. Yeah. And so she, I'm like, damn. And I uh, was back looking for work. Um, 
<laughs> but I mean, she deserves all that success. She's really amazing. Uh, so that happened. That was after uh, Turkey Hollow. Right. Which again was shot up in Canada. And it was more of a, that was more of a, you know, kind of a kid's adventure. Kind it was, of thing. it was on, it came on Lifetime. Yeah, that was a whole story. They were not used to making comedies. They're used to making like, and we all learned a valuable lesson or, yeah. and she left her husband who was cheating on her and trying right. to kill her. Right. Yeah. So this was weird. I was like, it's a comedy. And they're like, eh, it's too silly. I'm like, he's been like, in the big city too long and she has yeah. to come home for a, for a well, problem. And then she realizes her destiny. Yes. Well, we had Mary Steenburgen, who was great. Yeah. And I love talking to her about, like, you know, working with Jack Nicholson on, um, what was it, the Missouri Breaks? Or no, yeah. uh, was it Missouri Breaks or, uh, oh, wasn't it that? I think it was. It was about the law where a, a guy's going to be hanged if a single woman wanted to marry him. I, I think so. Yeah. I think it was. Anyway. So it was like Jack Nicholson first or direct, and she was like 19 or 20. Yeah. She had these amazing stories, which are hers to tell, but she was great. Um, she was so sweet when I met with her and she said she was going to do it. She loved Jim Henson. She loved the idea. She, and, and she basically is playing the complete opposite of herself. She's playing this kind of cranky old aunt whose husband was a nut job who had found these creatures and she kind of tolerated them. And she was called Aunt Cly. It was based on a story that Jerry Jewell had written with Jim Henson. So back. she's playing Ted Danson. <laughs> no, not at all. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I said, less, because she was doing a scene and her natural sweetness came out. I said, less Mary Steenburgen, more Francis Sternhagen. Yes. Oh, like, my God. That's funny. Francis Sternhagen. Do I look that old? I'm like, no, no. I'm talking no. about personality. Like, you know, just kind of drier and more, you know, old school army. So, so we've done that. And then uh christine mcconnell and then the muppets changed hands at disney again they'd had five different management teams over the since 2004 when uh, yeah they were uh, bought by disney or the henson family sold them to disney right uh and we did a bunch of shorts called the muppets now started as one thing became another thing i, I worked on two or three of those my favorite one was peppy's game show which is if you've ever seen a Latin American game show or a, there's a show out of Mexico called a la cama, or is this crazy host and it's all showgirls dancing and, yeah. and it just seems completely freewheeling and weird. I said, well, that seems like the show that Pepe would want. Probably. So we kind of wrote a script and then Bill would just improv off of it. And we hired as the guests, the contestants were improv actors. And so it was completely unhinged and that was fun to do. And that's where Joe, the legal weasel came about. Um, which was a new Muppet character that Peter Lenz did. And so that pretty much brings us right up to Muppet Haunted Mansion. So the end to the end was Muppet Haunted Mansion wrote, wrote it, wrote the out, wrote the story and then co-wrote it with, uh, well, Jim Lewis and I and, and Kelly Younger broke the story. And then Jim didn't want to, he had a lot of stuff going on in his personal life. So he just would kind of do notes. So then Kelly Younger, Bill Barrett and I wrote it. And uh, it starred Pepe, and I'd been trying to do a Muppet Halloween movie for ages, or so uh, Disney owned the Haunted Mansion, so that was great. Uh, the production was fraught with problems, but again, the Muppets. So, and then a year after that, I I got my cameo in um, Werewolf by Night. Now, that's another story. I've told that a few times, but what was interesting to me was our budget was seven and a half million dollars to do all singing, dancing Muppets, yeah. three musical numbers. The budget for Werewolf by Night was told was around $27 million. Yeah. And the same shooting schedule, except they were had three actual sets. We had to do the entire Haunted Mansion on the computer and just do yeah. a, a, a virtual background. No, no. Now you get used to the Marvel low budget, which yes. is slightly a different scale. Exactly. It's just so funny. And casting, we didn't, we weren't cast until the third week. Like it was a three week shoot. We didn't have our main cast until week three. Well, that's not true. We had Will Arnett. And I learned after uh, shooting all day when my voice is tired, I talk exactly like Will Arnett. <laughs> a little less dry. Um, but anyway, so that was great. I was really, I'm really proud. That's my, probably my favorite. I mean, that and Treasure Island, because I got to co-write Treasure Island. This I got to co-write and direct. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, minus a few weird details I've probably forgotten, uh, is between these two episodes. Most it of it my, brings us to the pinnacle of your career, this. This show, too. 
bearded beardos. I'm always want to say, <laughs> I want to say it the right way. Um, it's weird talking about yourself because it, it's, it's boring to me, but I know people ask. So yeah. at least this was more weird stuff that you don't know about. Hopefully, I just, I just enjoy winding you up and watching you go. Cause it's, that is espresso entertaining helps. to me. Yes. This is actually espresso, Coke zero and milk. Wow. I learned that from a Spanish friend. They would, they would put espresso in their Cokes. Wow. Yeah, just instead of adding sugar or anything, you just put it in your Coke, your Diet Coke, and you get this caffeine. Wow, body. that's that's crazy. I'm gonna have to try Good that for directing someday when I feel like killing myself. <laughs> one, one thing I would say, I don't know if everybody who's listening to this has been noticing. Maybe it's just because it's marketing to me, but there's a lot of ADHD information there, especially on Instagram, and people are talking about it and diagnosing it and all that. Yeah. And I've always, you know, ever since I was born, my parents were like, you're different. And people are like, you're, you know, you're funny, but you're different. And I realized in the last year, particularly, that it seems to be predominantly, you know, what, what I thought was my personality was ADHD. But in our business, at least for me, it's been much more of a help than a hindrance. It's really bad for keeping your house clean. Yeah. But you learn to make to-do lists and just sort of, you know, the discipline part was the hardest part just kind of buckle down and focus because that is not your uh mo but, but that's why directing adhd is, is fuel for creativity it literally you're is. constantly looking at things differently constantly putting things together that may not necessarily need to be and absolutely you think out you can't not think outside the box it's hard right. to think because the there's box. no box there's exactly. no box for you and and that kind of hyperactivity of it it was like this 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 is great for directing because there's 12 things you need to focus on the camera the lens the actors the scene the overall thing the music you're going to have the sound effects you could add so i found that that it's just as as some people have said on these again instagram things talking about it it's a superpower and it's also a hindrance to again in, in real life yes yes to having a clean house is that is really where i find it because I can make lists, I have remind my phone is just constantly reminding me of stuff. So I've I've figured the workarounds to to get stuff done. But one of the earmarks of it is, you only do a thing when it's an emergency, when it has to be done. Yep. Because if you don't, why wouldn't you just lay in bed and watch TV or relax? And uh, so that's I think when I read that, I'm like, okay, that's very me. Like you know, do your project the night before it's due. Yeah. And and I've learned to not do that, particularly with work. But uh, I, I, for anyone there who has ADHD, it, it's definitely, it's not like dyslexia. And I know dyslexia yeah. is a big thing with creative people too, but there's, I, I haven't heard of the benefits of dyslexia. But, yeah. but my, my question was ultimately, so have you found that you check some of those boxes or I, you- I check some of those boxes. I'm not really ADHD. I'm much more uh, sliding in a straight line. Um, you seem but more linear, yeah. I, I do have I do have uh, dyslexic tendencies. Oh, okay. So there you go. Because I've I've never been good at, at differentiating right from left very well. I always have to have a mechanism in my brain to tell me which direction is which. Oh, interesting. Okay. And uh, I have a a problem reading. Uh, uh, just reading. Uh, really? because I have to go over it several times oh, um, for comprehension or just tracking it just well kind of both yeah because I, I get I get lost in the thoughts of the of the what's written and then just you know lose my place it's uh, it's but very so odd did, do you think that made your visual acuity stronger because your verbal in terms of reading not you obviously very well spoken but do you think it it enhanced in other words you know whatever you're missing you your other skills get stronger I, perhaps but the, the funny thing is i'm also really good at cold reading you know i i can i can be given a script and okay. i can read with feeling i've seen you do from it. the first from the first read and it's it's if that's one of my superpowers but i never get to use it well but, no we've got to do it when we've done um scripts gone wild and our live oh yeah 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 Darren and I have been involved with a group, the Frank Dietz and um, uh, the guy who set it up, who's I don't know as well as Frank. Right. Um, uh, I want to say Joe Bob, but it's not Joe Bob. Anyway, no. Scripts Gone Wild. You can Google it. There's a bunch of them on YouTube. Um, 
but yeah, your your cold reads and your impressions are great. I mean, uh, but I was curious because again, a lot of creative people have these kind of undercuts from you know neurotypical people. Yeah. But and again, I think for me, the ADHD really is just sucks for my house being organized. I well, live. Yeah, but, I, that, I, but that's not that's not only ADHD because my house is the same way. And uh, oh, really? it, okay. it, it's just that there there's plenty of time to do that. I well, have things that I that I need to do now. Exactly. It is. That, it's that have my attention. It's management. It's time management, yeah. which is why I'm really good. Again, well, I'm really good. I'm very successful as a director. I'm not saying the work is good. I'm go yeah. that far, but I'm saying I can manage my time. Going okay, we're doing this now, but we need to set that. So make sure right. you start setting that up because that's where we're going to next. Like that's You're good at seeing paths in front of you. Yes, and seeing and where they go. Pattern recognition, yep. pattern creation. Yep. But you're right. Throwing my clothes on the floor when I'm done with them, it can be there for a week because I don't care. Yeah, I mean, again, it doesn't I matter. Alone. We in live the grand alone. scheme of things. It doesn't matter. It's true, but that's that ADHD thing where it's like, if it's an emergency or if it's a priority due to whatever, then it gets the attention. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I have unwashed. I don't have unwashed dishes with food on them. I always rinse them. I. Yeah. I've, I've got workarounds so my house isn't infested with rats or anything. Exactly. But it is hard when you're dating. And well, again, as I've mentioned earlier in the broadcast, we are single. So ladies. I said ladies this time. I didn't say girls or gals or skirts good. or broads. Well, you now you I'll, did. Oh! <laughs> I want credit for that. I want credit for all the women I haven't beaten in my life. Uh, I've never laid my hand on one. Well, I've laid my hand. Never that's, mind. You know, that's a whole... That's a whole uh, uh stop episode, on a hole or episode really easy. That's a whole episode in itself. Uh because you know, I, I spent uh ten years in a long term relationship and right. uh and it's it's a different situation. And it's yes. it's uh well actually then I did clean the house because I knew my girlfriend was coming over and yeah. I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't uh force her to endure you know, dirty clothes on the floor and cat right. litter scattered out because whatever the cat don't care. I don't care. I mean, Cats it's not don't like clean dirty. Out after themselves. Oh, so God, they do not. Darren and I are both cat dads, and I at this point I have four. That's insane. Um, and uh, it's it's going to be a challenge. The the three little ones are now three months old. I'm probably in about another three months, I'll introduce them to. Well, I've introduced them, but I let them live with the. No one wants to hear you talking about your cats as babies. Yes, they do. No, they don't. I have pictures. Hold on, my wall. Oh, see, here we go. <laughs> on that note. All right. Well, thank you all for tolerating if you haven't turned out. I mean, I totally understand if you did. But if you did, tell your single, successful, rich girlfriends. I mean, friends who are female, who are single. Tell them to listen in. Yeah, that'll work. I mean, if you don't like Santa Claus looking guys, <laughs> or people who could have also played dwarves in uh, Lord of the Rings, do you have daddy issues or a Santa fetish? Oh my God, daddy issues! This is for you. <laughs> I I can't I can't tell you how many women have had. I subscribed to daddy issues for a, a long time. Well, yeah. Here's the thing: you take care of them. You provide. Usually, you're buying dinner. You're, you're, you're yeah. which is fine. I, that's also being a gentleman when I, I was no raised. No problem so. with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they don't either. Well, um, what I have problem with is if it's, you know. If it's not reciprocated. That is funny you say that because I was just talking to a friend. I said, you know what? Almost all the women I've ever dated, I was the giver. Yep. You know, the provider. And again, I was working. I had my, a lot of it was just financial. You know, I'll pay for the trip. And, I'll, you know, if you buy yeah. your meal once in a while, I'm happy. And I didn't, I never did it with expecting fiscal res, re, reciprocity. Yeah. But I always thought, well, you know, and then it comes down to it, are all relationships. This is a good one for next time transactional are all right. relationships except for family or something where you know there's a genetic component are they transactional in in the world today well because i think that my theory is yes of course they are at, yeah. at, the, at the very base meaning of it it is it, we've we've uh, couched it in uh, in ritual and uh, and in uh, romance, pr yeah. procedures and romance uh but the base of it is it it's supposed to it's supposed to create something else and that is a uh, an exchange. all right well that that is our topic so for that our is next... that is the teaser for next time
Yeah, transactional relationships, dating in the film industry, dating oh when you have yeah. a career, and uh, and the best sex we've ever. No, we can't do that one. No, uh, no. The weirdest sex we know. The no. strangest. No. No. We could do newlywed questions. Where's the most unusual place you made Whoopi? <laughs> that All right, that'll be, be that'll be the top. <laughs> I I okay. I'm gonna tease it. Leonard Nimoy's desk. And good night. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see you next time. <laughs>